0: This is the Guardian.
1: Berlin kann alles, sogar Hawaii. Genießt Windsurfen mitten in der Stadt und viele weitere Sommererlebnisse. Jetzt im Netz losurfen. Bucht eure Berlin-Reise. Mehr Infos auf visitberlin.de/slash world Going, going, gone. At the time this podcast was recorded, the government had lost 38 ministers and a crowd of cabinet ministers were gathered in Downing Street to try to convince Boris Johnson to finally resign. They included Nadeem Sahawi, the freshly promoted Chancellor of the Exchequer, who would be given his new job by Boris Johnson less than 24 hours before. Everything is in flux. Here's a bit of what Sazi Javid, one of the first ministers to resign, said in his post-resignation speech in the House of Commons. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top, and I believe that is not going to change. As we all expected, Boris Johnson is determined to somehow, somehow cling on, despite a stream of letters, some from ministers, others from backbench MPs, full of words like integrity and honesty and strongly making the case for a change of leader. When Boris Johnson appeared in front of the House of Commons Liaison Committee on Wednesday afternoon, his denial of how bad things were sounded downright ludicrous. You're asking me, I I love this committee, you're asking me again to offer commentary today on Um, political events. Well, I'm here to talk about I wish you to be clear. Then, just as we were finishing the editing of this episode, Johnson started his second reshuffle in two days and sacked Michael Gove. So, a few obvious questions. How did we get here? What happens now? And can our political system recover? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff, and her fellow Guardian columnist, Raphael Baer. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, John. What a day. We're recording this at 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening. Boris Johnson has just appeared in front of the House of Commons Liaison Committee, the body that gets to quiz him a few times each year. Um, people from the news media are outside Downing Street, where Cabinet Ministers have gathered, in the company of Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 Committee, reportedly to tell Boris Johnson that he now has to go. We're still not sure if he's going to go, when he's going to go and all that stuff. But but obviously, the situation is moving at speed and is quite incredible to behold. So let's talk, first of all, about how we got here. Um, We're now at the stage where the huge fallout from a scandal has long since started to obscure the scandal itself. So let's remind ourselves of how this week's huge political drama actually started. By way of big picture, the Tories have just lost two by elections. Partygate still defines the way a big swathe of the electorate see the government. Last week, the then Deputy Tory Chief Whip, Chris Pincher, resigned after allegations, which he denies, that he assaulted two men at the Carlton Club the previous evening, one of whom has now spoken anonymously about what happened. That triggered questions about a long chain of reports concerning Pincher's behaviour and the question of how much Boris Johnson knew before he made Pincher deputy chief whip earlier this year. Now, the line on those subjects from Downing Street kept changing. What the Prime Minister seemed to be saying was blown apart by the former senior servant, Samuel MacDonald, who said that the Prime Minister was briefed in person about a 2019 complaint concerning sexual abuse by Pincher, which had been upheld. It's quite something to hear how what ministers were saying at Downing Street's behest changed, climaxing in the claim that Johnson had simply forgotten that he'd been briefed about Pinch's behaviour and the fact that complaint was upheld. To follow that over sort of thirty six or forty eight hours was astonishing. It went something like this:
0: I don't believe he was aware. That's what I've been told today. Um, but uh, that's uh, uh, you were asking more about more general rumours, and I, I've no idea what conversations have been had. I'm just I am aware that he. The Prime Minister was not aware of specific claims that had been made. I asked Number 10, both
1: clearly and firmly, for uh, answers on this, and I I have been given a categorical
0: assurance that the Prime Minister was not aware of of, uh, any specific allegation or complaint.
1: Last week, when fresh allegations arose, the Prime Minister did not immediately recall the conversation in late 2019
2: about this incident.
1: In order, that was Therese Coffey, who I think is still the Working Pension Secretary, followed by the former Education Minister, Will Quince, who's resigned, and Michael Ellis. Anyway, by Tuesday, the mood of Tory MPs and ministers was plummeting. A familiar story, really, was being repeated yet again. Ministers doing the media rounds and saying things that were simply not true, and the Downing Street press office doing the same. Raph, let me ask you, did it feel to you at the time, and we're only talking about sort of Monday and Tuesday, as if this might tip into something terminal
0: as it was going on? I'll be honest and say uh, no, actually. I mean, certainly because for precisely the reason that you say, uh, this is quite a familiar thing that happens. The uh, number 10 cooks up a line. uh, They send ministers out to defend it. The line turns out to be indefensible and the ministers look kind of embarrassed. But the shamelessness of the Johnson administration is so is so contagious. Uh, that 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 seemed to sort of have the potential to run and run without it becoming this sort of seismic landslip that would sweep the prime minister potentially out of his job altogether. The one thing that really did make me stop and think, okay, something very different is going on here, is that letter you mentioned by Simon Macdonald. Um, just because you know people who know him and I've dealt with him a little bit uh, in private uh, and spoken to him, uh, it is is so colossally uncharacteristic. For anyone who had that role, the most senior civil servant in the Foreign Office, and for that man in particular, who's such an expert in dealing with the, the kind of nuanced, euphemistic, half-eyebrow-raised idiom of Whitehall communication, to go on the record and just say, look, actually what's happened here is a prime minister has lied. Um, that was the point at which I thought, oh, OK, actually, maybe there's just a bit too much straw on this camel's back now. But other than that, I felt pretty normal, sadly. I mean, the sort of the new Johnson normal.
1: Gabby, same for you, that it was the McDonald letter, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was sort of presented to Dominic Raab mid-interview on the BBC, which sort of heightened the sense of drama.
2: It was, yes. It, I mean, he'd put it on Twitter um, and then literally he, he came on on today very shortly after Dominic Raab making uh, Dominic Raab look like an idiot because of course Dominic Raab just defended the government line and that that definitely was the point. Monday night you were starting to get stirrings that this wasn't quite, um, there was real anger, there was real, and I don't know whether it's because this is one where MP's personal safety felt as if it was on the line. You know, that you put this guy in the whip's office knowing what he is, knowing what he does, you put him in a position where he has an extraordinary amount of power over MPs' lives, really. He can make your life miserable or not if he chooses. As, as a whip, you know, he's keeper of your secrets. He's the person who tips you for promotion or doesn't. You know, to, to put someone who abuses power in a position where they have a lot of power and puts MPs and vulnerable people, not just MPs, at risk, there was real anger about that. And then when Simon MacDonald, as, as raf said, you know, when Simon MacDonald comes out, you start thinking, hello, this is not, you know, we are not in normal times.
1: Okay, so it's a combination of the of the awfulness of the Pincher case itself and Simon McDonald's intervention, then tipped this somewhere that Partygate and so on really hadn't got to. Let's talk about the resignations, because that obviously was the, was the clear sign that this was going somewhere different. I mean, God knows, in months of doing this podcast, it sometimes felt like every week we've said, is this it for Johnson? No, of course not. He'll hang on. That's what he does. But it it felt like this was going somewhere different once Javid and Sunak resigned. Now, I think the number of resignations currently stands at in excess of 35. It struck me, actually, that Sunak and Javid going, as dramatic as those resignations were, weren't as sort of symbolically significant as some backbenchers going, particularly real Johnson loyalists Red wall MPs who what it felt like only a matter of weeks or days before had been his staunchest defenders. I'm talking about people like Jonathan Gullis, the Stoke-on-Trent MP, Lee Anderson, I think his name is, is the MP for Ashfield, the the seat in the former East Midlands coalfield, that once they started making uh, their opinion known that Johnson should go, that's when I knew he was in deep trouble.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that partly, but I wouldn't underestimate the significance of just a prime minister losing the Chancellor of the Exchequer, just because that created that accelerated things uh, beyond the Conservative Party to the extent that you can't you can't have markets opening in the middle of a really difficult economic and financial situation without there being a finance minister for a G7 economy. Do you know what I mean? So it's sort of, I think that suddenly zoomed the lens out a bit and said, okay, this is actually a major government crisis, not just a psychodrama within the Conservative Party. So I I, I sort of half agree with you, but I do think certainly the Chancellor going just turns it into something different automatically.
1: My dad said that when I spoke to him about it that day. So uh, you're in full accord with my main source of wisdom. (laughs) Um, Now... Let's hear let's Sazid Javid, who uh, on Wednesday, immediately after Prime Minister's questions, made his post-resignation speech. Sometimes these are really quite dramatic political occasions. We'll come on to discuss whether this one was, but it sounded like this. I have concluded that the problem starts at the top, and I believe that is not going to change. And that means that it is for those of us in a position who have responsibility to make that change. I wish my Cabinet colleagues... Well, I I can see they have decided to remain in the cabinet. They will have their own reasons. But it is is a choice. I know just how difficult that choice is. But let's be clear. Not doing something is an active decision. Gabby, I thought... I was awaiting something like I'm old enough to remember this Geoffrey Howe's big dramatic speech after he resigned from the Thatcher government and all that. And that was that had the tone a little bit of a sort of grumpy person at a corporate away day. Didn't quite meet meet my expectations of drama.
2: I don't think it was aimed at you know I don't think it was aimed at evoking the same kind of feeling as how you know how did how didn't want to run for leader at that point for starters. I think Javid was trying to do two things there. First, I think he was nudging. You know, that bit that that extract that we've just played, which is absolutely about saying, look, if you're still there, you're condoning it. You know, you may think that you're sitting back and letting someone else sort of take the risk, but by staying there, you are condoning it. You are keeping him there. I think that was a nudge to other cabinet ministers who were teetering on the edge like Michael Gove. You know, come on, get on with it, resign. And I think the other thing he was trying to do. I mean he ended on a very humble note by saying I'll be very happy just to be a good husband and father and chip in occasionally from the back benches to which he thought yeah right you know he I think he was positioning himself he opened with a bit of his backstory. You know, he I'm is, a kid yeah. to, You know, he t- he positioned himself as someone doing the honourable thing. You know, all that talk about teams are only as good as their captains. Lots of. You know, this is all stuff that Toriul didn't slaps up. I think he's very much left the door open to a run there. And if you're doing that, you don't want to go in too hard.
1: Now, after Javid and Sunak resigned, um, we began to see something that I felt was slightly surreal. Really, was the imp- appointment of replacements. You know, this idea of what the next cabinet was going to look like. And I was very struck, this, this may be because I used to be a music writer, by the fact that when they appointed, or Johnson appointed, Steve Barclay his, his chief of staff, to be the health secretary, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? And then there was some speculation about who would get education and who would be the chancellor. And then it turned out Michelle Donnellan. I have to be honest, I I've had not, I've not heard of her. <laughs> I don't think much up to this point. And Nadim Sahabi was going to be the chancellor. It put me in mind of those occasions when rock groups, lose key personnel like they lose the drummer and the guitar player and the songwriter and they find two guys through the back page of the music papers and then they go out as if nothing's happened and their hits dry up right like what is this and how how is this going to sustain itself and, and no one's really going to buy it did you have that sensation
0: there was a famous there was a famous gig that The Who did where Keith Moon was too off his face on drugs and couldn't basically play. I think it was in Las Vegas. And Roger Daltrey basically said, is there anyone in the auditorium here who can play the drums? And they got to, <laughs> start, to climb up on stage and try and play with The Who. Yeah. So it was a bit like yeah. that. And apparently it wasn't a great gig. I was, well,
1: I was a bit reminded of um, it's quite a famous occasion when um, John Squire, the, the guitar player and songwriter in the Stone Roses uh, left and they'd already lost, lost their drummer. And with two or three new guys, they headlined the Reading Festival and Ian Brown was more out of tune than ever. And then that was the end of them. Right. So like, you can't do this. It's not going to work. I mean, it's now falling apart. But was was there ever any chance, do you think, that patching it up in the way that Johnson did with those people in those posts, he could somehow hobble on?
2: No, it's our to our stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's not and it's not even your, you know, your music personality. It's it's like getting a drummer out of the back page of the NME and 24 hours later, the drummer's <laughs> saying to Roger Daltrey, you need to leave now. You know, it's kind of I'm taking over the who. You know, it's, it's just kind of the whole thing is, is just literally how do we get through the next 20 minutes? Well, we need a cabinet. You know, where can we? scrape one up from. Don't even worry about, you know, junior ministerial, we just don't worry about junior ministerial appointments. Party chairman, we haven't had one for weeks since Oliver Dowden resigned. Fine, let's just carry on with what we need to carry on with. And then and even then, you know, you're slightly held to ransom by who's who's willing to serve and and who isn't. I mean the odd thing about that though is that Nadine Zahawi really missed something there. His that was his option. When the Chancellor went, you could have had a situation where the Prime Minister is right, you know, you be Chancellor. And Zahawi says, no, I'm not doing it. You know, this stops here. You need to go. And the rest of the cabinet says, we're not doing this. You know, we are not playing this game where we all shuffle around again. You know, this is it. It's over. And they didn't do that. Even at that point, even when two, three cabinet ministers, if you count and have gone and it's obvious it's over, they still don't have the guts to actually say so.
1: But can I ask you another question? How did you feel about Zahawi then ratting on him? Less than twenty-four hours after getting the chancellor's job, as you say, then saying, "Right, I know I'm only the new drummer, but the singer's got to go."
2: It's ridiculous. I mean, if you if you believe he has to go, then don't serve as his chancellor. You know, there is this clip, there is this theory that you know a lot of people I respect advance that that Zahawi was playing a clever game because then he'll have been the chancellor. You know, he's, he's kind of catapulted himself up the rankings a bit ahead of a leadership contest, you know, because he's coming at it from a more senior position. I think he's shredded his reputation with a lot of people who were thinking, everyone else is kind of, you know, maybe Zahawi the a sensible option, maybe it's a centrist option. If he was a real leader, you know, leadership is leaving the cabinet at that point. Leadership is not hanging around and waiting to see what happens and then joining in with there's a delegation that happens to be going.
1: Um, something's just come up on my computer that says uh, that the Times are saying that even Pretty Patel is calling for Boris Johnson to go now. There is a lot of anxiety around, isn't there, that he might pull some kind of Trump move of saying, look, I, I'm the one who won the 80-seat majority. It's my mandate. You can't get rid of me. Now, I don't know, thinking about that, how that could play out in the sense that uh, the centre of that, kind of prospect is a snap election but then Tory candidates would have to stand on Boris Johnson's behalf and there'd be the same Tory candidates who want rid of him and so I don't I don't I'm not quite sure how that works but I've heard so much talk about it today Gabby it's been endless
2: I mean it's an empty threat in some ways but I think it's indicative of him thrashing around looking for an answer to what happens. The the theory is you know that he could either lose a vote of no confidence which removes him as leader and then instead of doing what you should do at that point say I'm not leader have a leadership contest there'll be a new prime minister. um, He could try and call a snap election and kind of almost like go to the country like appeal over people's heads to the country you know would you would you do you still want me as your prime minister. Um, And It's very unlikely in those circumstances the Queen would actually grant a snap election. She doesn't have to. Um, And there are a particular set of rules that Boris Johnson was quizzed about later in the day at the Liaison Committee and obviously had never read, um, which govern her decisions in those circumstances. Unlikely she would do it. But I think the fear is partly that Boris Johnson almost does what Trump did in terms of going over the heads of process to the voters and pitches it as they won't let me stand, they won't let me have a snap election, Brexit is at risk, you must save our Brexit now, and, and that, that doesn't necessarily, you know, lead him to some kind of conventional victory, but it does. I mean, it could literally trigger violence, or it, it triggers unrest. It triggers, it only takes one nutter, you know, and, and we know there were a fair few of those around on the um, Brexit side.
1: Brexit has been swirling around this drama over the last few months. I mean, let's not forget that when the no-confidence vote in Boris Johnson was held, people around him, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a, is a good example, were framing the fact that the no confidence vote was happening as a sort of Remainer plot, you know, like it
0: was people who wanted to somehow frustrate Brexit. So that's there anyway. Raph, do you feel anxious about that as a prospect? Um, uh, Anxious that somehow Brexit will be jeopardised by Boris Johnson leaving. That would be fantastic. No. That he might pull a trumpet for even
1: people like you feeling worried and dismayed and scared, maybe.
0: Interesting. Gabby mentioned that moment in the liaison committee. I don't want to get bogged down. in. The right. Company.
1: Stop there. Stop there. Stop there. Let's play it. This is what happened when Bernard Jenkin raised roughly the prospect we're talking about. Talk about. I wish you to be clear about one thing, that if you have lost the confidence of your MPs, you will not seek a dissolution. You will stand aside and allow a leadership election to take place, so the prime minister may t- may send for an alternative leader. Uh, that's uh, that's the proper procedure, isn't it? What I'm going to do is get on with no. Uh, I uh, need uh, you to answer you question. Where you're quite you right. Where I passionately agree. I need you, you to answer with this will question, will prime minister. And with you is that I, I, I see absolutely no I'm going to ask you one If you have lost the confidence of your MPs oh, yeah. and you're required to step down as leader of the Conservative Party you will not seek to dissolve Parliament. Well, I think the last that thing that this country case. needs, the, I, I, the need, last thing. Because no, this has... Way, but this not, has, I'm not going to step down, and the last thing this country needs, frankly, is election. Uh, so he sort of superficially rules it out without quite ruling it out. I think that's my reading of that.
0: There was an extraordinary moment just before that when it first came up, and he said, look, I, would, I wouldn't I would go to the Queen and, and ask for a... An, uh, Um, And a dissolution, unless, uh, uh, unless, and then he didn't, couldn't finish the sentence. And then uh, Sir Bernard Jenkin kind of pressed him, unless what, unless what, which led to that exchange that we just heard. Okay, let me put it this way. Someone who's worked very closely with Boris Johnson. Uh, said something I thought very interesting to me not that long ago about him because we think that it's all about power and he loves having power and that's why he won't give up and I think there is an element of truth in that but the clarification that was put to me was that actually what he loves is winning or in particular what he hates is losing Uh, and so in his mind as long as he's still standing as long as he's still on the pitch he hasn't lost and he will therefore keep fighting until literally he there's no fight left in him because if you're fighting you haven't lost yet and I think that's what that represents is the sense is there's always another move that I can make that will keep me in the game
1: on Twitter today Raf, you said this was starting to feel like I'm quoting you one of those police camera action episodes where well, the driver knows it ends with him in a ditch, but he's committed to the chase now, and the thrill of destruction is what keeps him going more than any thought of escape.
0: Yeah, I think that's broadly true, isn't it? I mean, essentially, you know, <laughs> the, 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 but that is the same point, isn't it? That there is a sense that just being, you know, that just having another move to make, whatever it might be, escalating more means that there's always the possibility that then around the corner, there's something else that you can do and it's never over, you've never lost. And I think that's how he he plays, that's his modus operandi.
1: That metaphor would suggest that he's not a sort of fading indie rock group, he might be OJ Simpson, but um, let's come on to the 1922 committee which met, or some of it I think, met about 5 o'clock on Wednesday and there was some speculation about whether there would be a rule change almost there and then which would open the way to another no-confidence vote. That, Gabby, isn't going to happen if it does happen until next
2: week? Monday. I mean, they've essentially given him, uh, I would say, time for a graceful exit. So just just to recap, um, just to go step back a second um, for those don't know, and aren't sick of hearing it by now, I mean, you, you shouldn't be able to have another vote of no confidence for another year because he survived one a month ago. You need a rule change to allow that to happen. Um, The committee could either have decided to change the rules tonight or it could have waited until their elections to the 1922 committee next week. In the circumstances, you'd expect everyone elected to be an anti-Boris person who was happy to change the rules. So, you know, it happens at that point. I think by saying that what they'll do is bring the elections forward, have those on Monday, that's likely to start the process. That's saying to Boris Johnson, look, this is going to happen to you. You're going to face a vote of no confidence. You can either go through that humiliation next week or you can stand down now, and that is what cab- you know. Half of cabinet that's in Number Ten, along with Uncle Tom Cobley and all, is now trying to persuade him to do go in a way that doesn't damage the party. I mean, to a slightly extent, you think good luck with that, because Boris Johnson doesn't care about the party, and you know he is most he is at his nastiest when he's in a corner. He's charming when he's winning, and when he's in a corner, that's when it becomes absolutely about his survival.
1: Right. On that note, we are going to pause, and we will come back uh, and talk about the state. The country's in, the state politics is in. How long it can last and where it might go next.
2: Hello, Faker Others here. This summer, the UK will play host to the Women's Euro Championship. I would say it's going to be a seminal moment, but I have promised my producers that that kind of chat is not going to be allowed on our brand new podcast, The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. Throughout July, myself, Susie Rack, and a bunch of women's football experts will be on hand three times a week to provide instant reaction and analysis from the tournament. We'll be launching with a preview episode on Monday, the 4th of July. So make sure to search, subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Guardian Women's Football Weekly is supported by Visa.
1: Berlin can alles, sogar Hawaii. Genießt Windsurfen mitten in der Stadt und viele weitere Sommererlebnisse. Jetzt im Netz lossurfen. Bucht eure Berlin-Reise. Mehr Infos auf visitberlin.de slash worldofberlin. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us in the midst of all this drama. Um... I want to talk about what might follow this, but before we we get there, are we all agreed that this is it? I mean, it might take a while, but this is it.
0: Uh, Yes, I am. I think he can't, I don't think he will be Prime Minister um, by the time of the parliamentary recess.
2: I think it's over, but it depends how much damage he does on the way out. I mean, does he kind of burn everything down and drag the building to the, raise the building to the ground behind him, I think.
0: Okay.
1: Then the obvious question to ask is what might follow this? who's not only been leader of the Conservative Party, but for quite a while, in all likelihood, who's going to be the Prime Minister and what sort of approach they're going to take. So, come on, who are we looking at?
2: I think the sort of manner of Johnson's going has reversed the order in which I would would previously have given you the names. You know, up till now, we'd all have been saying, oh, Rishi Sunak's a busted flush, his wife's a non-dom, you know, he's the forgetter, he's out of the running, it's it's all fallen apart. Um, And I think that by going when they did, um, for both uh, Rishi Sunak and uh, Sasha Javid, that's uh, probably increased their chances because they looked like they did the the sort of honest, decent thing and got out at the point where they were showing leadership by doing so. I don't know how much Sunak actually wants it. I think he could quite happily go off to California and have a very nice life and spend lots of time with his children and, and you know make lots of money and I'm sure he would love that um, but if they want it I think they've enhanced their position I would have it's obviously not going to be I think a remainer this time so sorry Tom Tugan-Hatton sorry Jeremy Hunt yeah, there'll, there'll be a sort of Brexit has to be safe in the hands of the next leader kind of issue so I would just very much keep an eye on Penny Mordaunt who is that candidate who doesn't have necessarily I don't have anything against her. She's not a millionaire, not a non-dom, not much scandal attached to her, not a Remainer. You know, lots of negatives um, sort of are removed in her case. And it's one of those one of those kind of leadership elections where being not being ruled out for anything else might mean that you're the one left standing at the end, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's happened in the past. John Major was arguably an example of that, right? I mean, he and Duncan Smith sort of fitted the bill. It's not unknown in the Conservative uh, Party. What, uh, Raph, can you give us your top three?
0: Well, what, what supporters of Penny Morden would say in you know to sort of boost her chances is that she is someone who might have the potential to do something like what Boris did in terms of what Boris Johnson did in terms of holding together this very unusual coalition, that, that voter coalition that produced a landslide win in 2019. So the issue there, as is we've discussed countless times before is you won over a bunch of people who traditionally voted Labour but were also strong leavers and wanted to get Brexit done but then you've also got the traditional Tory shires what we now have to call the blue wall and this horrible taxonomy of walls and colours that we use in British politics now um and Penny Morden being uh she sort of has the capacity to present as a sort of old school small c conservative uh, and she's sort of socially liberal she's quite a sort of a, a she's not a sort of a a, a, a egg yokon, tie, swivel-eyed, red-faced, old reactionary, but she's also quite a, a Brexiter. And there's the sense that she could do something, some of that Heineken effect, as it used to be described with regards to Boris Johnson, of reaching across to all these different kinds of voters. Her friends say she could do that. Um, I think, and again, but the, and Ben Wallace, I just think, has a, a great advantage in terms of just that slight John Major effect of being the antidote to whatever came before.
1: Now, this isn't just about or the prospect of a Tory leadership contest won't just be about a clash of personalities and so on. There are real policy tensions playing out here. There have been for a while as far as the Johnson government's concerned, which we saw on Tuesday when um, Zahawi, newly promoted to the post of Chancellor, was sending out signals about how this was going to be a different approach than Rishi Sunak and that he was minded to cut taxes and perhaps be less het up. Um, about balanced budgets and so on the Rishi Sunak could be.
0: yeah there is a sort of middle way there though isn't there where you say okay we're not we're not suddenly going to become social democrats all of a sudden um, but actually uh, investing in infrastructure and doing these things that's now a, you know, a much more mainstream position for a conservative to have uh the, the, you then inevitably get into the question of who's paying for this stuff, uh, and if you're going to be fiscally conservative on the point of debt, but also want to cut taxes, you just literally don't then have much headroom to start spending on the sort of things that even though the sort of we'll, we'll spend on infrastructure, but we won't spend on benefits type um, post hesseltinean stuff left of the right wing of the party, if such a thing exists. Um, would be up for but, but i mean more broadly i think what we've got to remember here is just the amount of pain that's coming down the track to a lot of people and a lot of people who voted conservative i mean you know the the obr forecasting you know the, the steepest decline in living standards since the 1950s you know inflation at 11 percent. you know everyone's going to be feel this feel this pain and what i think a lot of people have underestimated uh, about you know one of the or, or sort of forgotten almost about why boris johnson has Got himself into you know a, such an an aggressive and nasty place, particularly on culture war issues, is because he he didn't have anything to say on the things that people actually care about, and he wanted to kind of stir up his base, get into sort of wedge issues on immigration or or attacking woke leftism or trying to uh, cast the Labour Party as as reneging on on Brexit because that was the only way he could get some kind of emotional animus behind his 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 his, his, his platform because he didn't have an economic. Offer, And I think that will be exactly the same problem for whoever replaces him. And that same person will eventually discover not being able to win on the economy forces you to start fighting on culture wars. And we'll be back to that zone very, very quickly, I think.
1: Now, I've been sort of thinking in my quieter moments all day about whether... There is more to Boris Johnson's downfall than only these really, really big, of course, questions about his character and competence and arrogance and all that. And that his downfall represents political weaknesses of him and the Conservative Party in other ways, one of which is perhaps to do with the fact that their great revolutionary project, although nobody's talking about it in politics, is clear to a lot of the rest of us that it's foundering, that, that Brexit is unravelling. It's not working. And that's part of what's weakened his position. I don't know what either of you think of that, Gabby.
2: I think the central problem with Boris Johnson is and always has been Boris Johnson and it's Boris Johnson's lack of in- honesty, lack of integrity, inability to give a straight answer, temptation to lie his way out of whatever trouble he's in, and that's exactly what we've seen um with this scandal, but it's also what we've seen with party gates, also what we've seen with Owen Patterson, it's also what we've seen with everything. But I think the two are connected in the sense that Brexit is also founded on a lie. You know, if you come in as if you're elected on a promise to deliver something that doesn't exist and can't be made to exist, and then your government is gonna be a process of being forced to confront the fact that actually, you know, your Northern Ireland deal is not what you said it was and your trade deals are not what you said we were, then government is constantly forced into a position where it's, you know, it's, it's trying to reconcile things that can't be reconciled. And it's constantly, you know, untruthful about things. And you have a cabinet of people who have, shall we say, a flexible relationship <laughs> with reality, otherwise they wouldn't be serving in that cabinet. So the two things do come together in that sense. The fundamental failure is not levelling with people it 's not being straight with people about what the reality of the situation is, what you 're going to do about it, what you 're capable of doing about it
1: raph there 's a, a famous George Orwell quotation where he talks about England is a family and it 's run by the wrong people in charge and, and, and the cupboards are full of skeletons and all the rest of it, and like a sort of classically dysfunctional upper class English family, it seems to me that Brexit is this thing that everybody involved knows is there, and the, and the lies that gabby 's talked about. Everybody knows we're told and are are unravelling. And therefore, in this dysfunctional atmosphere, inevitably, pre-Partygate, pre this latest scandal, I mean, arguably, sort of pre the pandemic, there were sort of hints of this starting to happen. This was going to be a weird government that was going to come to a weird end.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, uh, the important distinction I would introduce here is that we tend to use, and everyone in British politics tends to use the word Brexit to describe two totally different things. Uh, One... You know, is sort of real Brexit, which is the the practical process of extracting the UK from the institutional framework and the economic ties that were membership of the European Union, and the other one is a kind of uh, psychological, emotional, national renaissance that is that, that will sort of have us uh, entering a new Neo Elizabethan era or of 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 wonder, you know, and global Britain uh, and and restore milk and honey and. Those are two very different things. And the, the crucial point about the sort of the second one is, as Gabby says, it's not available, doesn't exist. And the crucial thing about Boris Johnson's candidacy in 2019 is he became the kind of the incarnation of the denial about the fact that that didn't exist. So the whole kind of cakeism thing that you don't have to reconcile those contradictions was sort of baked into the the very idea of making him prime minister. And then one final point I'd say in relation to that is that that meant the people who he brought into the cabinet and the qualification for serving in his cabinet was willingness to be part to participate in that denial. So you have someone like Jacob rees who very clearly obviously looks at the world now and thinks, I will never get a better job in government than the one I have now. And they understand that their survival in this era is downstream of Boris Johnson. As soon as he's gone, Brexit will still be there. But that delusional apparatus of Brexit will go. That that bubble will burst when he goes, I think.
1: That I mean, that shows you that arguably the plot line here is like classically Shakespearean. It's like Macbeth or it's like Scarface, the gangster one with Al Pacino in it, whereby the character commits a sort of original sin, a foundational sin or a series of them. And therefore their fate is sort of set at the beginning. And you know that this is going to go wrong for them somehow. And eventually it does. And Brexit and the lies that surrounded it. And as you say, the the denial wrapped up in it, somehow is a really big part of the story. We'll talk about that next week uh, and... and weeks after that, I'm sure. I just wanted to end with a final question uh, to ask uh, a couple of political journalists, and I'll sort of uh, I'll, I'll account for myself here as well, about how you felt, really, watching what's happened today. And I have to say, I've been completely gripped. It's like a film that I don't want to end, I suppose, to, to some extent. As grisly as the details of it are, but also I, I have an anxiety about it that I don't know wh- where it's going to end and I fear there's something unpleasant, profoundly unpleasant even more unpleasant than what we've seen already waiting for us at the end of it. So I suppose it's a mixture of those two. How do you feel Gabby?
2: I mean a big news day is kind of, you know, Glastonbury political nerds and it's, it's been like that today, you know, literally there have been times, particularly sitting through the liaison committee, you know, when he's he's in the middle of a grilling for from MPs and then Darren Jones, Labour MP pops up and says, do you know there's a delegation of cabinet ministers literally waiting outside the door to tell you to go? And you're just like, am I in a cheese dream here? So it's like, you actually, am I going to wake up in a minute and realise that none of this is true? So there's a surrealness of it. But also actually what's worried me all the way through, and I'm really glad that Keir Starmer opened at PMQs this week by Just going back to testimony of the victims, because it's really easy to forget that in the middle of all this, you know, drama and excitement, and it's very funny in some ways, terrible, you know, really awful things happen to people that were brushed under the carpet and ignored and diminished and trivialised. And that is what Boris Johnson does to people. You know, there's an awful human cost that's precipitated all of this. And I just feel anxious that that doesn't get forgotten.
1: And Raph, is therefore a sort of satisfaction that he's getting his comeuppance finally?
0: Well, actually, not really. I would have anticipated, you know, if you told me in advance, this is what the day would look like, then I might have felt that. I mean, at one level, the very banal level, I had to write something. and I was on the deadline. So I was thinking, if you're going to go, can you either go well before six o'clock or tomorrow? Don't go at a really awkward. I mean, that's just a sort of journalistic kind of you know, gripe. But no, I mean, more seriously, I think, you know, the reason I didn't feel any, that, as much Freud as I thought I might have done under the circumstances is just thinking, actually... There's so much sort of slurry that has spilt across British politics that you just the more when you see him really stripped down in the raw, you know, in the liaison committee, that that that, that, that mafiosi temperament that you see on show, and you think, well, we don't yet know the scale of the damage that's been inflicted here, and you, you're, you're you're sort of psychologically, you're mentally already tossing up the bill for the repair job that's going to be have to done that's going to have to be done to British politics when he's gone, and that actually kind of took some of the. For want the a better word, pleasure out of seeing him on the road.
1: I concur. There'll be more of this next week and the week after that and the week after that and you'll both be back, I'm sure. Anyway, thank you for listening uh, and thank you to you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, John. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, if you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast, and even better, leave us a review. It must be a nice one. That's my ma- mafiosi. Side going out there. Next week, I will be joined by The Guardian columnist Marina Hyde, who will be with us to talk about her book, What Just Happened? The very opposite question, and all the other week's news. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Mas Ebterhage and Nicole Jackson. And we'll be back, along with the absolutely outrageous shit show that is British politics, next Thursday.
0: This is The Guardian.
1: Berlin kann alles, sogar Hawaii. Genießt Windsurfen mitten in der Stadt und viele weitere Sommererlebnisse. Jetzt im Netz lossurfen. Bucht eure Berlin-Reise. Mehr Infos auf visitberlin.de slash worldofberlin.